the Buddha once said that hatred will never cease through hatred, but that hatred will cease through love alone, that this is the eternal law. When I first heard those verses, I found it a little bit hard to relate to them, and I realized that the reason why I found it a little hard was that I wasn't sure whether I'd ever personally experienced what it felt like to be hated by someone. And I also wasn't really very sure whether I'd ever really had the experience of ever really hating anybody. You know, there were plenty of people I might have disliked or been irritated with or, you know, certainly never wanted to marry or spend a lot of time with. But hatred seemed to indicate this this incredibly intense sort of rage. And then I sort of reflected on it a little bit different about some of those other feelings that I had indeed experienced you know, of feeling pretty angry with someone or frustrated or averse or, or judgmental or resistant. And really came to realize that in many ways these were really kind of just different, different tones, different levels of volume, I might say, of the same kind of song of hatred. And when I reflected on those experiences, you know, of really disliking someone or, or really wanting to be away from someone or, you know, those times when it's a very judgmental, it was really easy to see that their consequences and their effects were really quite immediate, both in terms of outer consequences and in terms of inner consequences, that it was very clear that the effects of those feelings, or I might even say those positions inwardly, of anger or blame or, or judgment, that the effects were always divisive. There was no doubt. It never brought me closer to anybody. The effects were always divisive. The effect was always to solidify separation, and the effects essentially were damaging. You know, there was nowhere that I could see in my own life, in my own experience, where rage or blame or judgment had ever led to a greater sense of oneness, understanding, or communion. And for me, this was very actually helpful in, in understanding the, the place and in in a way, the, the very vehicle of loving-kindness. This really began to see that, that loving-kindness was actually so crucial to well-being, not only to inner well-being, but that actually loving-kindness was so crucial to the well-being of our planet, of our communities, of our families, of our relationships, that in understanding that the damage that actually is affected by division and anger, and then you really begin to sense the way that loving-kindness is actually not really a luxury, 
But somehow it, it is actually something that is quite essential to the well-being and safety of us all. And yet, of course, it is very easy to idealize and it's very easy to have romantic images of loving-kindness. And, you know, even a day of, of just endeavoring intentionally to connect with that sense of warmth and friendliness, I think it becomes very clear for us that loving-kindness is really one of the greatest of, of human art. I mean, it can feel like a lot of effort, and it can feel like we have to go through so many layers to touch that place of warmth and friendliness. And yet we can see that even in that effort, even in that, that, that conscious willingness to make our homes in a greater sense of warmth and friendliness, that it already immediately brings with it a kind of integrity and a kind of dignity to our life and to our presence in this world and in ourselves. I mean, we can see, you know, today you've probably observed, you know, there are many things we can choose to do with our minds. Or sometimes it feels like we have no choices, actually. But there are, there are many ways that we can, you know, spend our, our thought energy, our, our psychological, emotional energy, the ways that we c that can invest that in, you know, dwelling on the past, in solidifying some resentment we have against someone, uh, just in simple fantasy, uh, the kind of psychological, emotional investment we put into planning, rehearsing, strategizing about, you know, who we should be, what should happen in our life. And it's not necessarily, you know, certainly not to label that as bad or wrong, but we can see that there's a certain shift and a certain change in our consciousness when we actually bring that investment, you know, and it's a strange word, but when we actually dedicate that same time, that same energy to listening, to being present, to cultivating sensitivity, to having a simple sense of intentionality in this moment. The Buddha spoke about loving-kindness as, as a quality and energy of immense power. In fact, said that there is no barrier, no obstacle that loving-kindness cannot penetrate. But of course, it's not the power that, you know, ideals don't have power, obviously. You know, just good thoughts don't have power. The kind of power that loving-kindness actually has and carries is the power that comes through our willingness to actually apply and embody, embody it in our lives in a way that touches us and changes us and in a way that touches and changes the world around us. Certainly no being in this world is exempt from the need for loving kindness simply because there really is no being in this world who is exempt from pain. In the moments in our own lives, you know, when we feel very um, overwhelmed by, by pain or by sorrow, by loss, by hurt, by division, we all know that it's really not prescriptions and, and formulas and advice that really is all that helpful to us. 
what really heals us is often the very loving support and presence of another person or the very loving support and attention that we can offer to ourselves. In our world, you know, where there is obviously so much sorrow and pain and exploitation, it's also very clear that, it, that we've had enough kind of prescriptions and philosophy and righteousness and blame and opinions and that really they don't actually affect to change anybody's heart hardly at all. That what is probably needed to really affect the changes that are so essential in our world is that individually that we take upon ourselves the commitment and the responsibility to look at how we touch our world of this moment because that is actually all that we can touch how we actually touch our world of this moment how how we live our lives how our lives are might be lived in a spirit of of service of generosity of giving will we extend a quality of, of responsiveness, of, of dignity to our actions and words. It's so interesting to explore, I think, that the landscape of our emotional world. Because actually we see that the landscape of our emotional world really so much affects everything that, that we do. That the landscape of our emotional world so much affects how we see other people, how, what we think about what we, how we act, how we speak, how we see ourselves. That the, this emotional landscape is, is one that can feel at times inaccessible. And yet also it becomes, I think, one of our greatest teachers. You know, just listening to our, our own emotional landscape becomes actually a, a great doorway to wisdom and to transformation. I mean, probably all of us have had an experience or many experiences in our lives when we really directly know what it feels like to be really lost in anger or, or filled with fear or filled with alienation. And in those experiences, we sense that they're, what a kind of dark prison of the heart they are. That, that when, when we're in the, those spaces uh, where we feel really lost in anger or, or fear or alienation, how do we see other people? How do we see the world? Often when we're really lost in those, those kind of spaces, emotional spaces inwardly, you know, we hardly look at the world and say, all is well. You know, people are so innately good, good and radiant. Instead, we find ourselves looking at, at other people in our lives and so often what we tend to see, of course, are all the shadows, all the darkness in another person, in ourselves. And we see in, in that kind of perception formed by how we feel that the very qualities of forgiveness, of understanding, of, of compassion, of friendliness really get drowned. And, and there's probably no force in the world that has so much power to to drown and, and, and to, to subdue our capacity for friendliness than the power of ill will. This is such a remarkable power, the power of ill will. 
when we look at, at our own life experience and the, the experience of in our emotional landscape, with those times in our life when we felt really deeply connected, bonded with nature, with another person, with ourselves, we also see how very differently we see the world in that moment. And then also how different our actions are, our responses are, that how those, those very connections with 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 closeness, with, with generosity, with care, they, th th those kind of responses tend to spring from a sense of communion, of oneness. What actually makes a difference in those emotional landscapes, in those changes? You know, those changes we see in our own hearts, from kind of shadow to light, back to shadow, from darkness to, to spaciousness, from those times when we feel imprisoned, what is it that actually shifts them? I mean, we usually have, you know, some habitual strategies for trying to shift those places, you know, usually by trying to kind of uh, numb them in somehow. But actually, we, sometimes we know that what really rescues us from some of the darkest places in our own experience is really the experience of being loved, touched, and cared for by another. We see that when we can actually move to touch another person, touch another person's heart with, with great generosity and understanding, or that when another person is moved really to kind of reach into our own darkness and prison, to remind us that we are cared for. That that power, just as ill will has a tremendous amount of power, so too does the force of warmth, of friendliness and communion also have a tremendous power. And the power that it has is actually to dissolve barriers and walls and divisions. In many ways, our own experience of that, emo that, that shifting emotional climate, our own experience of pain and what ends pain, our own experience of being confined and really being released from that confinement, is in a very real way, of course, a microcosmic view of all life and all experience for every living being, from the smallest creature to the most powerful person, we all experience fear and anger and ill will in the same way. For all of us, it creates pain and alienation. We are all actually helped and supported by care, by compassion and loving kindness. These are the qualities that actually heal us. Learning, learning that art of intentional understanding, intentional connection, in a way it is an art of undoing. Because what it really teaches us to do is a little bit to go beneath some of the stories and dramas and to deeply sense, actually, to deeply connect with what the feeling world is outwardly or inwardly. 
that lies beneath those stories and dramas. I think as human beings, actually, we, need, we really need to be able to stay in touch, to touch one another in a healing, caring way in order to acknowledge our interdependence, in order to live in a sacred way. Loving-kindness practice, to me, it's, it's an extraordinarily interesting practice because it really brings us very close to that, that world of feeling, the, wor- the, the emotional landscape of our hearts. I mean, in many ways, loving-kindness meditation is an appeal to the heart because it really invites us and appeals to us to cultivate, actually, that, that kind of greatness of generosity, the greatness of care, the greatness of sensitivity that is actually possible for all of us. In a very real way, we could say that, of course, that all meditation is an invitation to listen. <coughs> that all meditation is an invitation to listen to our inner landscape. An invitation to reconnect again and again with what is essential to our well-being, to freedom and peace. It's an invitation for us to really begin to see very clearly what it is that truly nourishes us, what supports freedom, what supports happiness. To understand, actually, to remember almost what it is that really matters in our life. You know, mindfulness practice is often called the the practice of recollection, the practice of remembering. And, And that's not a process of kind of, you know, pulling out old memories from the past. But that process of recollection, the process of remembering, is actually almost that kind of renewal over and over with what is really important, what matters, what is essential to well-being. In answering that appeal to listen inwardly, we learn actually how to travel a path of communion, of connectedness, one moment at a time. And we understand that just as ill will creates a certain kind of world for us, that a world which actually manifests, or a life that actually manifests dignity, respect, care, understanding, is a life actually that is rooted in very clear intention. And it is a life that strongly remembers what it is that truly matters. In mindfulness practice, and of course within loving kindness there's a very strong element of mindfulness, isn't there? Because it's about caring for this moment, about connecting with this moment. In mindfulness practice, there is an acknowledgement, a very deep recognition that Nothing is irrelevant. That every gesture we make, every action we choose, every choice we make, every word we speak, every thought we think, actually makes an impact upon the world. It makes an impact upon the world around us, and it also makes an impact on our inner world. That there is nothing that is inconsequential. But in fact, our very presence in this world creates its own ripples of effect. We are learning with mindfulness, with loving kindness, of course, 
very much to acknowledge what kind of presence we do bring to this life. Not only, not because we should, or not because there's some form of expectation, but to, to really, out of a wisdom of understanding, the need actually to, to live in, a, in an intentional, a committed way. You know, often when people come to spiritual practice, there often seems to be a kind of paradox between um, an inner life and an outer life. There often seems to be a sort of contradiction between a life of service and a life of renunciation, for example. And I think that, that in many ways, loving-kindness practice really kind of, in a way, balances or, or, or teaches us how to, to let go or to see beneath that apparent contradiction. I mean, most of us in this life actually want to live in a worthy way. You know, I was reading a, a, a survey today, actually, when they, they, you know, one of the eternal surveys. I, I love surveys. Anyway, they did a survey in England, you know, where they interviewed 2,000 people, and they said, you know, what do you want to be remembered for? What do you want to be remembered for? And 2% of the people they surveyed said they wanted to be remembered for their wealth and prestige. 82% of the people surveyed, these are ordinary people on the street, said they wanted to be remembered for their kindness. And I find that quite an extraordinary thing, that that, that wish, that that honoring of kindness, you know, is so strong, is such a powerful presence in our lives. Uh, often, often hardly even acknowledged, actually. Most of us want to live in a way of kindness, where we truly care for others, where we make a difference in the world. Where, where, we, where people feel that we, we offer an understanding, a caring, a compassionate presence. And yet most of us also, certainly in a, in a meditative path, you know, those who've had more experience with meditation really find themselves also wanting to understand what it means to let go, what it means to understand emptiness, what it means to understand non-attachment, what it means to be free. And sometimes it seems like there's a big gap you know, between that, that kind of search for freedom or, or understanding emptiness and a life of, of service and giving. But there actually isn't a contradiction. I mean, certainly a spiritual life is not just an inner life. This is probably, you know, very apparent to all of us. But a spiritual life is a dedicated life. It is a dedicated life. That is what a spiritual life is, to, in my understanding, is that it's a dedicated life. It's a life that's dedicated to compassion. It's a life that's dedicated to care. It's a life that's dedicated to freedom. It's a life that's dedicated to the end of sorrow. I mean, certainly in meditation practice, we learn a really, you know, such, such, such deep inner skills. In meditation practice, we learn such deep inner skills about equanimity, about clarity, about understanding. And yet these actually also are a cause or effect, of course, how we live in this world. I mean, the more that we understand about equanimity, the more that we understand about letting go, the more that we understand about the emptiness of division, 
This is also the degree, actually, that we can live in a selfless way. When we have less to protect inwardly, you know, we really learn what it means to live in a generous way. When we really learn to, to honor well-being and, and balance inwardly, um, we tend to live in a way of integrity and responsibility. When we learn inwardly about kind of some of the lessons about, about grasping and clinging and, and, and the sorrow of being lost, actually we are learning how to release things all the time. You know, much of meditation practice is actually about learning how to release things. Learning how to release some of our fears, our judgments, our, our expectations, our demands. And we are learning, actually, about how to dissolve the inner barriers that alienate us from ourselves. You know, the conclusions, you know, what are our inner barriers? You know, the images we hold about ourselves, the, the assumptions, the conclusions, the opinions, the views about who we are. We're learning to dissolve those inner barriers. And in doing that, actually, we're much less tempted to form a conclusion or an opinion about anybody else. The more that we really delve into our, and listen to the world of our own emotional landscape, the more that we understand the universality of pain, the universality of fear, the universality of sorrow, then I think that is the degree that we really very intuitively and very deeply understand that the person that we really see in front of us is ourselves in a different form. That caring for their well-being is caring for our well-being. That caring for our well-being is learning to care for the well-being of another. That what enhances our well-being also enhances the well-being of another. In this practice, we're encouraged to cultivate a boundless loving-kindness. I think that often seems like an incredibly idealistic idea. It may even seem impossible, and it may even feel, you know, so far removed from where we are. And yet, where does it begin? You know, it's not like boundless loving-kindness just appears because we would like it. Where do we begin except in the moment we are in? It begins by connecting inwardly, of course, with the radiance, with the natural goodness of our own heart. It is also true that in cultivating boundless loving-kindness that that has implications because it really means not making a distinction between friends and enemies. And that, that's a big leap for us to make. I mean, we'd all like to have boundless loving-kindness for the people we care for and love and who flatter us and please us and all those things. It might be quite a different prospect to think of having boundless loving-kindness for the, you know, the co-worker who irritates us, the, the employer who judges us, you know, the, the, the kind of uh, guy who gives us parking tickets, you know. This is harder to think of boundless loving-kindness. And yet this is actually what is asked, that there are no distinctions made. 
between worthy and unworthy, between high and low, between friend and enemy. When we first hear that word boundless, I think it it tends to kind of bounce off some of the opinions of our rational mind, or at least, you know, what we call our rational mind. We can think for a number of reasons probably why this kind of boundless loving kindness is not only impossible, but it might even be undesirable, our minds tell us. Usually when we think of boundless loving kindness, one of the first words we hear, we think, yeah, that's a good idea, but. It's a very powerful word, but. But, what about, you know, my own issues and dramas and problems that I have to sort out first? We think it's a good idea, but what about all those oppressors and people who create injustice and pain in the world? You know, they need something else other than loving kindness. We think, but what what about this person I, I really don't like for very many justified reasons? That surely, surely they have to change first, or surely they at least have to apologize. And then I will offer them loving kindness. We think, but, you know, I need to take care of myself first. We think it's a good idea, but, you know, maybe loving kindness somehow makes me very, very passive in the world. And then the causes of the pain would just continue. Now, I don't think that loving-kindness practice actually is some sort of denial of discriminating wisdom or any kind of wisdom. You know, you're not asked to leave your mind outside the door when you practice metta. But I think we are asked, actually, to to reflect on how it might be that instead of just getting stuck at the butt, we look at actually what it might be in our life to really nurture and commit ourselves to that quality of boundless warmth and friendliness. It's a very simple question. I mean, how do we want to live our lives? You know, what kind of path do we want to follow? What kind of experience do we want to cultivate and pursue? More and more we we begin to see that what we give attention to is actually what creates the quality of our world on a moment-to-moment level. You know, if we give attention to judgment and alienation and anger, actually that creates our world of the moment. If we give attention to understanding, to loving-kindness, to compassion, this creates our world of the moment. Our world is always being shaped by what we focus upon, what we dwell upon. This actually creates the shape of our world. That that is actually really simplifies the practice. I think it helps us understand that loving kindness doesn't mean that we we go out, you know, and make some heroic effort of self denial, or that we go out, you know, and and try to emulate Mother Teresa, you know, or become the Dalai Lama. That we don't then think that loving kindness means that we have to go out, you know, and somehow you know, be a marshmallow in the world of someone who never has a sort of contradictory thing to say. We're actually just asked to look at what we are dedicated to in the moment. What are we dedicated to in the moment? What do we give our time to? 
Where does our attention live? What do we focus upon? It's not about becoming perfect. Loving kindness is practice. It's not about becoming perfect. It's about being awake. And about being awake to how our world is created on a moment-to-moment level. And that path of being awake, of course, begins where we are, in the midst of our life. You know, in the midst of all our allies and our, all our adversaries. When we're more awake in our life, we actually appreciate that the opportunities of loving-kindness are always right in front of us. It does mean embracing our lives. You know, looking at this moment in our life, who are the people that we struggle with? You know, who are the people that we resist? You know, who are the people that we feel most resentful towards or most judgmental, uh, resentful of or judgmental towards? Who, where are the places that, you know, we've decided that these are no-go territories for us, that they're too uncomfortable or too disturbing? You know, where, where are the places in our life where, where we tend to kind of see, the, see people or see situations through some kind of inner stereotype or image? These are the opportunities for the cultivation of loving kindness. These are the opportunities that actually invite us to be awake. These are the opportunities actually to really see how our world really can change on a moment-to-moment level through the wakefulness that we bring. And we can experiment with those places and moments. You know, it doesn't like, it's not like demanding that we should suddenly feel very differently. But we can experiment with those moments. Sometimes we can, you know, probe a little bit beneath the conclusions or the images. Sometimes we can question a little bit, you know, whether there's the possibility of another way of responding, communicating, or listening to another. Sometimes we can experiment with what it might mean to to really let go of some of the history that that seems to be such a barrier and how we might actually really experiment with seeing that person anew. These are all the opportunities actually of this moment to be connected and to be awake. It's not necessarily an easy path. I mean, I really honor that. I know that loving kindness is not an easy path. And there's a lot that is asked of us. Mostly what is asked of us, of course, is the willingness to stay connected. The willingness to stay present. I mean, sometimes that that very willingness to stay present is, is the way that we we actually begin to see some of the very deep inner patterns and conditioning that lead us to disconnect. You know, sometimes we, we by staying connected, staying present, you know, it can be a, a little bit of a you know a nightmare for a time. You know, we, we see sometimes these we see the appalling patterns of of jealousy, of judgment, of fear, of resentment, of defensiveness. And yet we can learn to be creative there. You know, because sometimes when we encounter those patterns, it creates even more waves of self-judgment, you know, and self-perfecting. You know, this shouldn't be happening, I shouldn't be experiencing this. But we can also be more creative. Rather than seeing these inner patterns as enemies to overcome, we can see see them as allies. 
that ask us to be more awake and to explore another way of being present within those patterns within ourselves instead of further tightening or resisting we can learn to open learn to listen learn to receive learn to embrace them with a quality of inner sensitivity this is actually where we really learn about loving kindness i mean anybody can cultivate loving kindness when they're on the top of some himalayan mountain or surrounded by people who love and adore and flatter them you know i remember one time there's a story from the time of the buddha you know when when you know the buddha was visiting some some encampment of monks and nuns and and they all said to him, hey, go to him, look at this monk over here, you know. He's the epitome of peace, you know. I mean, look at this guy, he's always smiling, you know. He's always peaceful, he's always gentle. And the Buddha said, what is he like when you shout at him? You know, of course it's easy, isn't it? You know, people admire us and we feel wonderful. You know, but the truly peaceful person, the true person of loving kindness, is that person who in the midst of, of blame or in the midst of censure stays steady stays gentle stays receptive i think what's really you know in in the in the buddhist tradition often when you see an image of the buddha it's kind of seated on on a lotus flower and the lotus flower is actually a very powerful symbol and because it's really a symbol of, of growth, of opening, of deepening. And the lotus flower, of course, only ever grows in muddy ponds. You know, lotus flowers don't grow in, in chlorinated, sterile water. They need mud. You know, they, they need compost. They need that kind of nutriment for them to grow. And I think this is also true of loving-kindness practice. It doesn't grow so e easily. In, in inner waters that are that are too too sterile it actually needs some of the mud of these patterns of judgment and resistance and jealousy for a genuine loving kindness to really grow you know there's that old saying you know that fish don't live in water that's too pure you know loving kindness grows in the compost of some of our most difficult places there are aspects, I think, of loving-kindness that are important to consider. One of them is forgiveness. Forgiveness, it does seem to me, is really the basis of being able to begin anew in our relationships and lives. You know, there's many, probably all of us have experienced times in our lives when we've been hurt by someone, blamed by someone, rejected by someone, and we really carry those imprints. You know, most of us can remember, you know, if you're asked to sit down and recount a, a story of all the pain, moments of being hurt in your life, most people can do it, you know, you remember this stuff. And it's so interesting that we solidify those moments. Not only do we solidify the feelings, but we solidify the people. You know, that they did this to me. They made me feel like this. You know, and the only way to, to avoid that pain is to avoid that person. But it, it's so interesting in solidifying someone who's hurt us, you know, through conclusions and through images, that the more that we solidify them into an enemy, 
the more do we also solidify our own fear and aversion. So we harm actually ourselves. Forgiveness is actually releasing ourselves from that kind of bondage. You know, it's so interesting the way that we think much more in our lives about the people who've hurt us and offended us than we think about the people we love. You know, we spend so much time thinking about the people who've hurt us and offended us. We can go on for hours. Hmm? To make books about them. But it's because, you know, that energy, that energy of aversion, the energy of fear can be so strong. Forgiveness is actually a way of, of releasing ourselves from captivity. You know, as long as we live in that sort of solidity of image and solidity of aversion, we're, we're really closely married to the people we most dislike in this life. It's like they are, they are almost our constant companions. Forgiveness is not about, you know, just erasing the past. It's not about pretending things haven't happened. But it is about caring for freedom. It is about the willingness to begin anew in each moment. The willingness to see anew, the willingness to kind of take the step across those divisions and and barriers. And forgiveness is very much linked to humility. Uh, You know, I think meditation practice is, is one of the greatest teachers of humility. I mean, you just look at your mind for 45 minutes and it's so humbling, isn't it? And somebody once said to me that meditation practice and, and listening to their mind was like experiencing one insult after another. And that's something that's kind of true for us, isn't it? It's like, oh no, you know, that thought again, that image again, that fantasy again, you know, that, that kind of wildness again. It's very humbling. It's a refreshing part of meditation practice. Humility is important in forgiveness. You know, it is so easy to, to condemn another person, so easy to feel righteous and superior. You know, sometimes when we're faced with the unskillfulness or the ignorance of another person, we hear this voice in with me that says, I would never do that. Yeah. We see someone, you know, being mindless in, in a meditation, we think, I would never be like that. Have they no shame? You know. We see someone mistreating an animal or, or shouting at their child in the supermarket. I would never be like that. And yet that's not true, is it? I mean, given different circumstances in our life, if we were you know, experiencing the same levels of harriedness, the same levels of inner confusion, who would we be? How can we ever say, I would never do that? There's probably not one thing that we have ever said or done or acted that is never that, that they've all been done before. Everything another person has said or does, we probably, given the right circumstances in our life, would do just the same. This is humbling. It is humbling. Because it's very easy for us to lose faith in the goodness of other people. I mean, if we look at our own lives, we see how many times we falter, how many times we stumble, you know, and how, how much in those times that we falter and stumble, how much we really yearn to be understood, you know, to be forgiven. I mean, there's a lot of doors we all have to go through. There's a lot of lessons we all have to learn. 
And we, I think it's so important to be able to extend that, that humility and that forgiveness to others. It is also about acceptance. You know, part of loving-kindness practice is acceptance. Acceptance is not passive, but is actually the basis of change. You know, so much in meditation practice and teaching, you hear this very simple instruction, be with what is. Just be with what is. It's about acceptance. It's about not coloring the world with our images and judgments and preferences. Be open to what is. Don't add anything to it. Don't try to manipulate it. Be with what is, because this is how things begin to change. Learning to be with what is is also actually learning to take care of what is. We take care of our thoughts, we take care of our feelings, because these are the forerunners of our world. The Buddha once said, the thought manifests as the word, the word manifests as the deed, the deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. With loving-kindness meditation, the formal meditative part of it, we are actually learning to watch the thought with care. We're learning to watch the mind with care. We're learning to take care of our feelings and our thoughts, acknowledging that they are actually the parents, the mother, the father of the world that we live in, the mother, the father of this moment, and that this moment is in itself, of course, the parent of the next moment. There comes a tremendous, I think, integrity in our lives when we really do learn to take care of this thought, this mind, this heart. Because we really begin to sense of, of what it means to live a life of, of dedication. What is it dedicated to? It's dedicated to well-being. It's dedicated to compassion. It's dedicated to understanding. And I think more and more we begin to sense actually the power really that loving kindness has in transforming our world at the moment and transforming perhaps even the most difficult of circumstances and events in our lives. I think if we have just a moment quietly together, and then we'll have a break. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.